Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. What is it about Canada and artificial intelligence? Like, is it something in the water? Like, what's actually happened here to create, to really put it at the hot white epicenter of the uh, AI revolution today? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think um, uh, the early pioneers of artificial intelligence came from Canada, Edmonton, Toronto, Montreal. Montreal. Yeah. And they were toiling away in AI when AI really wasn't, um, it wasn't the sexy sort of uh, place to be in technology. Well, there'd sort of been this boom in the 70s and, and then it sort of just went away because people couldn't get it to work. It did, yeah. Until uh, until your friend Jeffrey Hinton right. <laughs> at the at University the, of Toronto. At the Vector Institute. Yeah. So they've stuck at it and of course Canada is well known for its research capabilities. It's, it's um, university institutions have been very active in research. And so what's happened is but this research is now starting to push the boundaries of computing. And if you look at um, in Waterloo, which is our Silicon Valley, um, in, in Canada we have uh, some amazing technologists coming out of universities, plus our immigration policy um, is far uh, friendlier than uh, the, the current regime in the US. So we're attracting massive amounts of really good talent into Canada, into all of the, the different cities. In fact, uh, Canada has actually hired more tech people in the last year than Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley, Chicago, and New York combined. <laughs> <laughs> this is the new Silicon Valley North. Right. Um, and, I, and I also find that if, if you walk the streets in Toronto or any um, metropolitan city in Canada, very, very diverse. There's a mosaic of cultures here. And I don't know what the secret sauce is. I've lived in Canada now for about 33 years. I emigrated here from England. Um, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what accent you have, what you look like, where you come from. There's just some kind of secret sauce here and everybody just seems to get along. So you talk about collaboration and work environments. Not only does it work across cultures here, so we've got this cultural mosaic that's working, but we have three generations in the workforce for the first time, and that seems to be working too. So it's this sort of acceptance of who you are in Canada that I think is adding to the recipe of us delivering great results. I'm having a cup of coffee with Phil Armstrong, who's the uh, global CIO for Great West Life Co. Uh, we just met today at, at this wonderful conference I was speaking at. And um, one of the things that I was really fascinated um, is not just the experiences that you and the organization have been having with AI and automation, but your role in setting up uh, one of the first ethics bodies mm, uh, yeah. for Canada, which has actually attracted quite a bit of interest worldwide. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, we, we were challenged by our two co-sponsors, which is Alex Bernay, who's the CIO of the Government of Canada, and Jim Basili, who was uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Blackberry Rim. And we've created this um, working group, this really talented working group of government and private industry. Um, and we're coming together to address this challenge of how do you put some kind of structure or framework around the ethical usage of AI? 
And our first debates and conversations were quite interesting. At first we went, well, it, it really comes down to two things, the data and the algorithms. And so naturally we zoomed in on the algorithms. I think we were a bit um, keen to get off the mark. And then we realized that as we start to tighten some rules and responsibilities around an algorithm, um, we realized perhaps that wasn't the best way to go. Because as technology evolves, I think anyway, that um, we may start to see self-adapting and self-changing and self-learning algorithms. Right. And so how do you constantly go back and reevaluate that against a framework when it's evolving in front of your eyes? So we came up a level and said, I don't think we can actually pin it down to the algorithm itself. So we took a different tact, and this took us a couple of months. And now what we're doing is we have a framework where we say on a scale of one to five, what is the impact of this algorithm on the customer and whoever, whoever and however you define the customer. So you're not even just looking at the optimums that the algorithm's optimizing, because in a lot of machine learning systems you don't know exactly how it reaches its conclusion. You can just set the, um, you know, the weightings. Mm, exactly. Um, yeah. But you're actually taking that step further and actually looking past that to the ultimate impact on the on the user. Yeah, start with the impact of the user. And there's, there's very different views. So for example, if I um, apply to the government of Canada for a driver's license, they, they, they've got a monopoly, I have to go to the government. Um, if you're shopping for insurance, you don't have a monopoly. So the government of Canada, I think, is gonna land in a place where the impact on the customer, that grading system, we can all agree on. It's the disclosure part that we're having some differences of opinion, and I think the government's gonna end up with a fairly open disclosure, and then companies are gonna end up with a modified disclosure. And the reason we're gonna do that is because... Disclosure of what? Disclosure of the algorithm itself. So where, the, where Canada's heading is to a place where um, if there are algorithms that are making decisions on you as a citizen of Canada, that you as a citizen can petition the government, almost like a Freedom of Information Act, and say, can I see that algorithm that, that actually took my data and made a decision? I, I can see the decision, but what was the algorithm that was involved in doing that? But, but to your point, if the algorithm is itself a black box, how? What, what do you disclose? They're going to disclose the actual algorithm itself and how it works and describe it back to the citizen. And there's even conversations going on around, well, does the citizen have a right to say, no, actually, I don't want an algorithm making that decision. I want a human making that decision. Right. So, so, so you could actually have a right of human appeal. Right. Right. Well, that, that kind of makes sense. Now, if you move it out of the government context, though, move it into uh, an industry context where they're not a monopoly and you've got a competitive situation going on here, um, opinions have been advanced where, am I really comfortable sharing my algorithms with, with my customers and, and the whole world? No, I'm not, because yeah. that's my competitive advantage. And, and actually, because this, this is coming up now in Australia, because the government is, is considering um, doing just that, making the algorithms uh, having to be disclosed. And Google is arguing that it actually would create a, a less safe world because you now have spammers and people that can defeat the algorithms designed to weed out fake news. Yeah, or take over the algorithm and manipulate for different different reasons. So I think um, on, on the industry side, where we're going to end up with is the same framework, but maybe a modified disclosure where perhaps what we would be more comfortable is 
disclosing the results and the, the impacts on our customers from our algorithms to our internal audit department or to our external audit department or even to our regulators. That keeps the competitiveness that we have or competitive advantage that we have and our sort of proprietary algorithms safe. The challenge is going to be as we go further down this path of digital transformation, the scale of decisions that will be automated is, is vast. It's not just someone's worthiness to get credit to get a car loan or a mortgage. It could be everything from logistics to payroll to hiring mm. to even the way the air conditioner operates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're getting some real ethical questions around, you know, do we get to a point where it, there's no point uh, applying for insurance because I'm of a certain ethnic background, I live in a certain area, I have certain attributes. Well, this is a nightmare for insurance because, you know, as, as we were, when we were talking earlier about this, you can't eliminate bias for insurance because insurance is actually about the commercialization of bias. Yeah, we've had algorithms <laughs> running in people's brains, we called them actuaries, yeah. for years you, you, you have, you've, you've made predictions about when people are going to die based yeah. on certain behaviors and priced it accordingly. Yeah. Our company is 172 years old. It's 20 years older than Canada itself. Right. Um, and we've had actua actuarial tables that, that have been gathering this data for you know decades and decades, centuries. And so we, we've just taken that those learnings and now moved them into a more automated fashion, but they're refining and refining. But even things like if you live in a certain part of the city, um, that your insurance rate should be this. Well, our city doesn't look like it does 150 years ago. Um, neighborhoods have changed, patterns have changed, crimes moved into certain areas, moved out of certain areas. So it is constantly evolving. So I think rather than going straight to the algorithm itself, you've got to take, take more of the ecosystem. People also assume that the data coming into the algorithm is clean. It's never clean. We've been collecting, and other companies have been collecting and storing data a certain way. Maybe that's flawed, maybe they've, maybe they've moved administration systems are converted databases and that wasn't a clean conversion so that's uh, driving and we, the and result. we also need a kind of an anthropology of data as well like we, we have to you know is it representative what culture does it represent who is collecting it um, and can Canada is a relatively young country and um, you know, we, we rely on immigration, so our, our whole immigration patterns have changed the makeup of the people that lived here, um, which is changing the data, which is changing our assumptions. So in my industry, in insurance, it's very complicated. But going back to the sort of ethical usage of AI, um, I think it's a valiant attempt to at least start the dialogue, try to come up with a framework. There are other countries around the world that are very interested in watching what we're doing. They've already declared, when you have something, we'd like to take this framework and see if we can apply it back home. Yeah. Um, because it's um, it's groundbreaking work. Well, disclosure seems like part of the, the problem, but when you're internally as a leader in an insurance company, uh, what, what is the level of conversation uh, that you need to be having about values and ethics as they relate to these systems? Because these systems offer immense advantages in terms of more precisely pricing risk. Mm. But, you know, what is the kind of the, the moral framework you should use when, when approaching that? So, it, it, in our company, um, we have 24,000 employees and we operate in different countries around the world, in, in the US and, and Europe and Canada predominantly. And um, I've approached the, the risk organization um, and said, I need some help here because 
we don't have this sort of machine ethics um, capability in our organization. We haven't. We have a, uh, an ethics um, function within our organization. So, for example, uh, compliance and our advisors are they are they um, offering the right advice and being ethical. So we have ethics running through. But that, that's our more about you know uh, fraud and about transparency, business and commissions, and business yeah, practices. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. But then when you bring it into the automation, that's that's really new. This is really raw. And so I've turned to our risk organization because they were the, the, the thinking sort of body within our organization that said, when you bring in robotics in, Phil, and now you're automating decisions and robots are talking to robots that are talking to robots, <laughs> um, where's that ethical thread that runs through and who, who, where, where's the sort of checkpoint where you introduce a human into the thinking once in a while to say, have they evolved? Have they started doing things differently? Have they gone off the path that you started on? And so we've, we've created a, a governance body inside our organization that has IT and business people, um, the, uh, the risk organization, and our, um, our legal organization to start looking at how do we make sure we stay on the right ethical path in, in how we use technology. Have you, designed, have you uh, defined any values or is it more about exceptions management? It's, at, at the moment, you're bang on. It's more about exception management, but I think as the technology progresses and as it gets more complex and, and more um, self-evolving, that's when we're going to have to move up that value chain. It's ironic because when Google first started, they were very proactive in the sense that they set a kind of a corporate mission of don't be evil. Like they, it's almost like they knew yeah. the power that they would have. And that, yeah. that strangely enough, got toned down as time yeah. went on. Um, but but we, almost, we almost need to set values um, that will guide people's micro decision making, you know, as they encounter algorithms. Yeah, I think um, when you look at just the, the power of technology and how uh, more powerful it's getting year over year, um, we're, we're not too far away. We start with automating simple tasks and then we move into automating complex tasks and then we start to link automation together in various parts of our organization because you have areas in your organization that's fertile ground for automation. But as that, that circle gets wider and wider, you end up with an, an organization um, that is primarily automated. It's just a machine. It's just a machine. And then you've got the people that are sitting above the machine that have creative thinking around how best to structure this automation into new products and new services. But they also have to be thinking that how best to serve the customer. We have this saying that we like to put the customer at the center of everything that we do. And so that's our North Star. And that started with treating the customer fairly. When they make an insurance claim, things like that, we wanted to treat them fairly. But it's now dribbling into, um, not just in a claims process, but into a processing process. We want to make sure that the customer is still at the center of everything that we do and that they're treated fairly by the algorithms and the machines. I'm fascinated by this vision that you're painting of these interconnected automated systems and these people who sit above mm. essentially dreaming up new products or new ways to engage mm. the, the customer and think, being creative. Who are these people? Like, are, are mm. they, Is this a new type of person or a new type of role? Yeah, so I have this image in my mind. Remember the, 
Model T Ford factory when they were building the Model T Fords and they kept it simple and said you can have it in any color as long as it's black. Yeah. So I have this sort of image in my mind of all these worker bees along the production line and they're putting wheels on or putting steering wheels on, etc. Well now, if you think about a digital factory, the input could be digi digital through a website or a, a web chat or something like that. And then you've got these robots that are actually doing uh, processes and they're handing processes over to the next person in the line, which is another robot. And then I have this image of sort of the floor above the, the old production line where you've got people in white coats looking down on the robots, except what, what they were doing, and we had literally hundreds of people doing this, is uh, ticking boxes of how many of these widget types were coming down the production line. Right. Now robots can actually pull off the type of widgets that are being produced and automatically build dashboards in real time. And so that feeds other robots that says, well, I've got a lot of these types of transactions coming down, so I need to activate more robots, but I have very few of these coming down, so I need to deactivate these types of robots. So now the workflow and the work patterning and even the reporting on them and the dashboarding of them is all automated. And then you've got these sort of like super users, which are actually humans that are saying, is my factory working well? Am I getting the right uh, response through my factory? But what patterns am I seeing coming through? Yeah. And they can feed that into the product area. And then our product area starts designing financial services products. And they start to think about how would our live human customers interact with these financial services uh, products? Automate everything whether it's voice automation or text automation or emails coming in. And they can in. run experiments and they simulations. Can. Absolutely, and we do that by bringing our customers into our digital labs and, and designing around our customers right in our labs. And then on the back end of the product, when we're perhaps um, reaching into maybe some legacy technology or some legacy databases or some cloud databases, cloud technologies, we can automate that with bots, specifically designed bots. So I'll give you an example. If Somebody calls in and wants to change their beneficiary on their insurance policy. They can call in or they can text in and talk to one of our automated digital attendants and we will have a conversation with them. Now, it's not a human that's having this conversation. So the, the ethical part of that is to tell people right up front or to brand it where they know they're talking to a robot. So they're not being fooled or misguided. But out of that conversation, we may gather five key elements. Who are you? What's your account number? What's your current beneficiary? And who, what are you changing it to? And perhaps some identification. And then you pass those five key elements onto a custom design bot that all it does is sit there and goes, is there any work? Is there any work? Is there, oh, look, I got some work. I got the five elements I need. It goes into the, into the legacy application. It changes your beneficiary, packages up a little confirmation number, and sends it to you via email or text or however you've decided that you want to be best communicated with. That whole transaction value stream is now automated. And if you think that, if you bring that thinking into your design labs, then you can start to build products that run and get serviced with no humans. So, so there's definitely a very creative job around coming up with and identifying opportunities for products. But there's also a very important job about designing those factory processes mm -hmm. to be automated, right? Well, you can't um, just take new technology and repave the old cow path, right? That's right. just not going to work. And it's not a case of um, 
how can we do what we do now better with new technology? It's actually blow it up. Yeah. And, and this is where I this think... This is the mistake a lot of people make with automation, isn't it? It's just yeah. automating an existing process. And this is why I think the hardest part of doing this is the cultural change. Because people don't want to let go of something that's working. Well, what do you call this new job? Are they, are they like um, process architects? Like, like, who are these valuable people? That... Well, so I've coined this phrase, glue people. <laughs> because they literally glue uh, old thinking and new thinking together and they glue business people with the business knowledge and technologists with the technical knowledge and process people and designers. We're, we're hiring... Presumably they're not happy with this job title. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's just in my mind. Yeah. But, I, but um, we all know that uh, most of the kids in school today are going to come out of universities and take jobs that don't exist today. We're going to create new jobs. We have to because the traditional jobs will get automated. Yeah. And I think the hardest thing to find are people that have that entrepreneurial spirit, that sort of creativeness, that oddity about them, where they're not thinking like everybody else. If you think about the real pioneers that have moved technology forward or, or business pioneers, they've all been a little odd. Because if you're same, same, same. Do you look same, for that when you're interviewing? Absolutely, we do. We do. What, what's, what's a pro, what's, what are useful proxies for oddness? I think um, um, uh, don't give up, uh, perseverance, um, thinking a little bit differently, um, being confident in yourself because you're different. Um, all of these sort of soft attributes that we're now starting to value a lot more. Okay, you need to be technically competent. You need to understand the business, depending on where you are in our organization. But these softer values are now starting to rise in prominence in our um, evaluation process. And getting these people that can have a foot in technology and a foot in business and be translators, those, are, those people are gold. You mentioned before you've, you've invested quite heavily in, in robotic process automation. Hmm. What's really been the scale of what you've been doing and, and how have you been doing it? So, um, we, we managed to bring in our robotic process automation platform about a year and a half ago. And um, it took a little while to get people ready for this. We're, we're very, our, our company is very large in certain communities across Canada and Europe and, and the US where in some communities we're the most dominant employer in that community. So the first thing that everybody jumped to immediately was, oof, job losses, what are, <laughs> how, how is this going to work, what are we going to do? And I think what we've now got over that cultural barrier by saying, we're, we're actually automating processes that people hate doing, and this frees them up to be more creative and to, to turn into these glue people, if you like. Um, and so, so that was the first step. Now we're at the point where we've created Rather than rush in and start building bots and letting them loose across our organization, we did tours of other, other companies that were a bit further ahead on robotic process automation than we were. And we're learning from their mistakes because there's been some major mistakes made. What we decided was invest heavily on creating the factory, getting the intake, putting the governance around it, having some standards, having our other parts of our organization like risk and compliance and audit comfortable with what we're doing and having standards that they can live with before we even released a bot. Now we're at the stage where in one year we've got a million customer transactions and business transactions fully automated using bots. We're probably, but our, our bot factories. Is it is it 
just segments of the organization or you're really centralizing all of the back office in one of these factories? It's, it's both. So when you write a bot, you could have um, an augmentation bot. So I do this one particular function 150 times a day because I'm in the call center. We'll write a bot for that so I can shave, you know, five or six seconds off it. So that's like a little task bot. But we also have bots that literally take an input from a customer and then take it all the way through to a process bot, end to end. We've got those as well. Um, so by the, by the end of uh, next year, we should have about 200 bots running. And even if you create one bot, you can deploy it a thousand times. Are these just macros or are there kind of is machine learning involved as well? So the bot platform that that uh, we purchased is, is one of the leading bot platforms in the world. It's quite sophisticated. And what we're seeing is that these very large bot robotic process um, vendors are now starting to inject machine learning and AI into their bots. Right. But you have specific types of bots that you can create. So for example, um, the vendor that we're using has uh, a module where you can create an Excel bot and all it does is take Excel spreadsheets and macros and pivot tables and creates over Excel spreadsheets. Well, guess how many actuaries and finance people do all this type of stuff, closing the books at quarter end, year end, month end, doing modeling. So this has been phenomenal for the, for the finance people. And then there's other bots, and this is really powerful, that literally act like a human so you assign it a user id and password and it can sign on to a legacy mainframe system navigate its way through screens enter data do some screen scraping sign on to another platform that's maybe in the cloud or on a different type of technology have five or six administration systems open at the same time and start moving data between all of these legacy systems this is new this has only been about for the yeah. last two or three years that now you can connect legacy and mid-range and sort of uh, cloud and progressive system design all together. You've mentioned factory a few times. Do you really see this as a digital factory? I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I have this, I, maybe, um, you know, my background, I was born in the north of England uh, with the uh, textile mills and the Luddites. Um, and, I, and I saw the... satanic the, mills, I think, yeah. was, uh, was the poem I remember learning at school. And I, and I saw um, the engineering factories and right. I saw them leave and the factory itself going into rack So you ruin. thought you'd create your own satanic so I've got digital a, factory. I've got a digital factory in my mind, yeah. But it, but it literally is, uh, there's a lot of uh, parallels to a factory, yeah. What has been your strategy then in not just automating, but elevating the, the people that were doing these roles? I, I mean, what are they doing with their extra time? Have you, have you had to retask them in different areas? So um, the line between a business person and a technology person, it's not just blurring, it's literally disappearing. And, you know, I, I, we're at a conference right now uh, that our company is holding and, and our CEO uh, over the last two days, I've counted and said about four or five times now that technology, the technology area that I run doesn't own technology. The business owns technology. In fact, our business is technology. And so if you look at how technology is coming into our organization and how pervasive it's been, um, it is our product. And so these, the, the, the people that um, have long tenures with our company are, are having to adapt to massive amounts of change. Some of them are self-selecting and saying, I'm just going to retire, I'm, I'm, I'm not for this world, this isn't what I want to do. But others are embracing it and running with it. 
Um, and then certainly the millennials, which are starting to uh, be about 50% of our workforce now, were born digitally native. They're, they're right. embracing this. Same. And they actually would be much happier doing these sort of product design, product management, system process design. How can I express my creativity? It, right. it isn't doing putting widgets into a system, you know, 12,000 times a day. Hitting enter, hitting enter, hitting enter, like screwing bolts onto a wheel on a Ford factory line. This doesn't just require people that are odd, it, it requires people that are genuinely creative thinkers. Probably with very different educational mm. capabilities than we've trained people for these sort of industries. One of the parts. hardest questions is how would you define creative? And I think it's really difficult because you're bringing in people, um, you're bringing in people from other disciplines, um, different thought patterns, different industries even. If you bring people in from retail or from manufacturing or the travel industry into insurance, people look at you and go, what the heck? But they think differently. They have a different perspective of a customer. And our customers, let's face it, our customers are comparing us to their experience with Netflix and Amazon and all these other digitally advanced companies. That's the bar that, that we're being compared against. So it is, it's a cultural revolution going on simultaneously with this digital revolution that's going on. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.